From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Let me begin today by naming three people. Anne Seymour, Jane Dudley, Elizabeth Parr. You no doubt recognise the names, but not because you know the women. Instead, I suspect it is their surnames that ring a bell because you have heard tales of their husbands. Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, Anne William Parr, Marquess of Northampton and Earl of Essex. But Anne, Jane and Elizabeth were as important in the Tudor century as the men. True, they didn't share the same jobs and the titles they held were thanks to marriage. You don't need a title to make an impact. The actions and choices of these women had a great effect, a much greater effect on the mid-16th century than has hitherto been acknowledged. They galvanised their husbands, they shaped power relations and they helped orchestrate events that we have traditionally assumed to have been driven by men. To discover more about these women, I'm pleased to welcome historian and researcher Sylvia Barbara Soberton, who has written a series of books called The Forgotten Tudor Women. One of them focuses on the women we'll discuss today, Anne Seymour, Jane Dudley and Elizabeth Parr. Sylvia is also the author of other titles that include Ladies in Waiting, The Women Who Served Anne Boleyn, and Great Ladies, The Forgotten Witnesses to the Lives of Tudor Queens. Sylvia Barbara Soberton, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's very nice to be here. Well, I appreciate you saying yes, because there are so many women who have been forgotten from the Tudor period that you have been bringing to life in your books about them. And the ones we're talking about today have very famous names. It seems extraordinary that they are not better known. Yes, that's true. Many of us might be familiar with the names Seymour, Dudley and Parr. Can you outline who Anne, Jane and Elizabeth were, for starters, and how they were connected to each other? Anne Seymour was the wife of Edward Seymour. Edward was brother of Queen Jane Seymour. They became quite famous after Jane married Henry VIII in 1536. And they gained power in 1547 following Henry VIII's death when Edward Seymour became Duke of Somerset and, more importantly, the Lord Protector. Jane Dudley would gain power later as a result of her husband's coup when he overthrew the Protector Somerset and became Lord President of the Council. They gained power for only a little bit because John Dudley also fell from grace in 1553 when he backed Lady Jane Grey on the throne. Mary Tudor won the throne in a bloodless coup, we might say. And Elizabeth Parr, I feel like she's the least known of the three. She was the second wife of William Parr. And William Parr was the brother of Henry VIII's sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr. 
And I like the fact that you've talked about Anne and Jane, along with their husbands, as holding power, because we remember the men's names, but as we'll see, the women are very important in the exercise of that power. Before we get into thinking about them as individuals, what compelled you to dig deep into the lives of these noble Tudor women? And how did you go about it, given the fact that the archive typically tells us about the men? I'm very passionate about writing women back into the historical record. And there's a lot of biographies about Henry VIII's six wives and his daughters. And they are fascinating, of course, but they tend to overshadow other people at court and mostly women too. And these lesser known women deserve to be examined in their own right because their lives were no less fascinating. And very often readers who read my books, they say, I didn't know that there is just so much about these women. Why are they no biographies? And it's a really good question. I feel like such a lot of spotlight is given to the more famous ones that the lesser known ones are just forgotten. And I really like this quote from the late Hilary Mantel. She said that history is not the past. It is the method we have evolved of organizing our ignorance of the past. It's the record of what's left on the record. And I love this quote so much because women have been in the historical records all the time. We just have to make effort to retrieve their lives from the record. And I feel like it's my job as a researcher, as a historian, to bring their stories to life, to give them the spotlight that they deserve so that they can shine along their more famous contemporaries. As to the second part of your question, of course, the men are well known. And when it comes to Anne Seymour, I always kept seeing her during my research. She just kept cropping up and I felt like she deserves to be included in a biography of her own. So I've just studied her husband and tried to see where is she in this story. And it's interesting that She's in the story all the time because the contemporaries, when he fell from grace, blame Anne for Somerset's fall. And that's very interesting because in the previous narratives, for example, of Edward VI train or in the biographies of Edward Seymour, she's nowhere to be found. She's just mentioned a few times and that's it. And I felt like her story is too good not to be told. <laughs> so let's us think about Anne and Stanhope before she married. She served Catherine of Aragon as a maid of honor. And as I understand it, there were a number of Catherine's women who were quick to defend her when Henry was spurning her, people who stood by her. But Anne is not one of that number. <laughs> so why and when did Anne switch allegiance to Anne Boleyn? So it's interesting because when Anne Boleyn rises to power, Catherine of Aragon's maids of honor and ladies-in-waiting start to disparage her. They say that she enticed the king away from the queen. Some even suggest that she used maybe witchcraft to seduce the king. And the Seymours are a family who is present at court for many years. When Anne married Edward Seymour in or before March of 1535, Edward was at court for about 20 years. He started his career as a page to marry Tudor in 1514 when she went to France to marry Louis XII. 
And he serves in a very important positions. For example, he's a master of the horse in the household of Henry VIII's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy. He is esquire of the body to Henry VIII. So he is day and night in the king's chambers. He has intimate, everyday close contact with the king. And the Seymours, I think they didn't really have any option not to support Anne Boleyn if they wanted their careers to move forward. And there is evidence that Edward Seymour, before he married Anne, he was already supporting Anne Boleyn. He was in Henry VIII's entourage when they went to Calais in 1532, where Henry VIII met with Francis I of France. He was present at Anne Boleyn's coronation in 1533. An interesting thing is that one of Edward's sisters, Lady Uhtred, was also taking part in Anne Boleyn's coronation procession in 1533 as an attendant horsewoman. So when Anne Stanhope married Edward, she was already marrying him under condition that she would support the next queen, that she would support Anne Boleyn. And there really isn't a lot of evidence from that particular period about Anne Seymour's connection to Anne Boleyn and how she felt about Anne's rise. But we do have some information about how she may have felt about Anne Boleyn's fall, because one queen's fall was another queen's rise. And of course, Jane Seymour, Anne Seymour's sister-in-law, became queen in 1536. Anne Seymour supported her sister-in-law, of course. But an interesting thing is, when I was researching Anne, that her stepfather, Sir Richard Page, was arrested as one of Anne Boleyn's alleged lovers. And I find this little detail very interesting, because here we have the Seymours, who are family of the new queen, and yet Anne Seymour's stepfather, Sir Richard Page, is arrested. But he escapes. He escapes. He's not found guilty. He's not executed. And there is a very illuminating letter from Page to Lady Lyle in Calais, where he says that he will never be a daily courtier ever again, that he's more suitable to live his life on the countryside. And what's interesting that Page does return to court in 1547 following Henry VIII's death when he's given a prominent post in the household of the new king, Edward VI, who, of course, is a child at the time. But it's interesting that Anne Seymour was in a position to grant such posts, of course, through her husband, not she directly, to the male members of her family, because her stepfather becomes prominent, then her stepbrother, Sir Michael Stanhope, becomes prominent, and she is very close to both of these men. That's really illuminating. And I'm not surprised that he was drawn to flee the court after such an event. Thomas Wyatt did as well and also came back. You suggest that Anne Seymour played an important role in Jane becoming queen. Can you tell us about her actions and whether you think it's simplistic to regard them as premeditated, given the advantage that the marriage would afford her family? That's a great question, because we tend to look back and we have a benefit of hindsight. The people back then, they didn't. They saw the events as they unfolded. And what's interesting to me is that, yes, there was a plan to remove Anne Boleyn from power. Courtiers who didn't like her, they schemed against her. There's good evidence of that. But they used words such as dismiss, 
ruin, divorce, annulment, not execution. When Anne Boleyn was executed on 19 May of 1536, it took all of them by surprise. And I think the most surprise would have been Jane Seymour herself and her family, because she was marrying not the king who just annulled his second marriage, but who murdered, judicially murdered his wife. And when Jane Seymour started, attracted Henry VIII's attention in early 1536, nobody really knew that she would become queen. And people around Jane, they suggested that maybe when the king wants to bed her, she should say no, like Anne Boleyn said no. And she does it. She says no. And she does this very public display of being a humble woman when he sends a messenger with a letter. And I like the suggestion of late Professor Eric Ives, who suggested that this letter perhaps contained summons to the royal bed. And she said no. And Anne Seymour was all the time close to Jane during this period. There's interesting letter from the Imperial Ambassador Chapuis who says that Cromwell gave his own private rooms to Edward and Anne Seymour so that they could act as chaperones for Jane during this period. And they did. And I think at this point, they supported Jane, of course, because she was their blood, their kin. But how it all would play out, nobody knew. And I think it dawned on them Perhaps on 15th of May, when Anne was tried, there's again Chapuis who says that Jane Seymour was removed from court with one of her relatives. He doesn't name the relative, but it's likely that it was Anne Seymour, the closest female relative, because Jane's sisters were not at court at this time. I assume it could have been Anne Seymour. As a woman, she would have been naturally there to chaperone, to perhaps give some advice to Jane. And of course, Jane Seymour wasn't alone. She had an array of Anne Boleyn's enemies who coached her how to act, what to say. There's this interesting observation from Chapuis who says that Jane inclines to be proud and haughty, not at all the humble person that history remembers her as. So it's interesting to ponder all of the possibilities of what was happening. But I feel like on 19th of May, 1536, when Anne Boleyn was executed, there was really no turning back. The next day, Jane is betrothed to Henry VIII. And that's the beginning of the rise of the Seymours. In June of 1536, Jane is proclaimed queen. It's official. It's done. And Edward Seymour received the title of Viscount Beecham. And Lady Anne Seymour is known then as Lady Beecham in the documents. And now everyone wants to be her friend. Everyone wants her favor. So she experienced that from being just a lady-in-waiting observer in the backdrop to being the queen's sister-in-law. And what is extraordinary is that Anne and Edward Seymour go on to have 10 children. And the first of them, by strange coincidence, is born on exactly the same day as Prince Edward, who will go on to be Edward VI. And this child, who's also named Edward, gets a bit confusing here, lots of Edwards, this is the second Edward Seymour that we're interested in, and indeed there will be another one, had impressive godparents, Queen Jane, Thomas Cromwell, and Princess Mary. What do we learn from Anne and her husband's choices here? Actually, there's a lot of confusion about how many children Anne and Edward Seymour had and their order in which they were born. Ah, interesting. In 1536, around that time, Anne had her first child, 
the daughter Anne, who was named after Anne Seymour. And then the child that was baptized in February of 1537 was a baby girl named Jane, after the Queen, of course. Gosh, this is very strange because the common record that I've always come across has been that Anne is born 1538 and that Jane is born in the 1540s. So you must tell us about the evidence you found here. Yes, there is good evidence that the baby Jane Seymour was born in... Because we have only the record of her baptizement, christening. So that was in February of 1537. And we know that Queen Jane Seymour stood as one of the godmothers to her. But this Jane, unfortunately, she died when she was just a child. But Anne and Edward Seymour had a penchant of naming their children Jane more than once. And in 1541, there was another girl named Jane who was born to them. And also they had two Edwards and two Henrys. And that's because the children die young and they like the names. So the name Edward after Edward Seymour, the name Jane after the Queen, the name Henry after the King. They want these names in their family to stay. Now, we know that despite having these children, looks like it might even be almost one a year, she continued to serve in the households of Henry's queens until the king's death. And this is a period of significant religious change, particularly, of course, after 1547. Is there any evidence from Anne about her religious beliefs? Can we trust Bishop Stephen Gardner's accusation that she was the stirrer of heresy? Our first indication of Anne's religious beliefs comes from 1545, 1546, when Anne Askew is arrested. Anne Askew was a heretic, according to Henry VIII's laws. She denied the doctrine of transubstantiation. She read the Bible. She preached what she was learning. And when she was investigated and racked, tortured, she refused to name the women of Queen Catherine Parr's household, who were of her sect, as the interrogators said. And she only said about Anne Seymour that one man in a blue coat came in to give her 10 shillings from my lady Hertford, because at this time Anne is a countess, she's a countess of Hertford. And that's all we know about Anne Seymour's involvement in Anne Askew's downfall. But we suppose that she was of the same beliefs. And later, when Henry VIII dies, Edward VI becomes king and the Lord Protector pursues religious reform. And there are a lot of voices saying that Anne Seymour was pushing him towards the uh, religious reform. And Anne Seymour corresponded with John Calvin. So here we go in terms of her religious beliefs. She probably supported Calvin. She probably had the same beliefs as he had. She allowed her children, her eldest daughter, for example, Anne, she corresponded with Calvin in French and in Latin. And reformers with Calvinist leanings were also employed in the Seymour household, so I doubt that she would have exposed her children to this particular thought if she didn't think that she agreed with this particular direction in which the religion was going at this time. But in terms of Anne's personal beliefs, we don't have written form of what she believed in, but we may assume that because contemporaries blamed her and not Somerset, 
for the reforms, we may suppose that she was very vocal, that she tried to push the reform. But of course, as a woman, she wasn't really in a position to do so. She was probably influencing her husband, not perhaps in a way that the contemporaries imagined, because I see their marriage as more of a partnership than an evil woman, a harpy, influencing her husband. They really loved each other, as is attested by the number of children they had together. When Somerset was arrested, she was doing all that she could to save him. And she did. In 1549, she did save him from the axe. She didn't have that much luck in 1551 when he was arrested again, because she was arrested with him. (laughs) But yeah, I see their marriage as a partnership. And that includes also what they were doing in politics, religion. So yes, do we have any of those letters that she wrote to Calvin, by the way? Or do we just know that they corresponded? Calvin wrote to Anne's eldest daughter, Anne, thanking her for the letters that Anne wrote and for the ring that Anne sent as a sign of her goodwill. So there was definitely a goodwill on Anne's part towards Calvin. That's helpful, at least, even if you don't have the letters. So in terms of thinking about her role then, and I'm aware, of course, this is a patriarchal age, it's going to be that they're going to blame the woman if they disagree with the policies being enacted. But when her husband became Lord Protector of Edward VI, Did she become something of a lady protector? Did she become a queen by any other name, do you think? One of the chapters in my book is entitled Queen in All But Name. (laughs) And so I thought that, yes, that she is queen in all but name because she has her own household. Wives of other statesmen, they seek employment with her. She's very powerful. She's very imperious also. And there is this interesting contemporary opinion of her that she likes to point out other servants' flaws and maybe other people didn't really like it, but she was this kind of direct person who wouldn't mince her words. (laughs) And also she had a lot of book dedications, people with reformist views, they dedicated books to her. She had her children educated, both girls and boys, which is quite extraordinary in that period. Even people from the continent write about how well-educated the Seymour children are. And her children were raised to become these leading luminaries of Edward VI court. It didn't really happen for the Seymours for the reasons Edward VI died young, Lord Somerset was executed, and they didn't quite live up to the expectations that they had of themselves and that maybe Anne had of their children. But in general terms, yes, she was treated as a queen in all but name, although she wasn't a queen. And of course, there wasn't also a queen at court to whom she would serve because Edward VI was just a child and he wasn't yet married. The Lady Mary, who was Henry VIII's eldest daughter, she lived in the countryside. She wasn't very much at court because she was a Catholic, protecting her views from her brother and from protector and from other people who pushed her to renounce Catholicism. Lady Elizabeth was first at the court of Catherine Parr, and then she departed for her own household. So Anne didn't really have a person who would challenge her authority But that was after Catherine Parr died, because there was this battle of precedence, if you like. Yes, let's have a talk about that, because we know that the law protector, Edward Seymour, quarrelled with his brother, Thomas Seymour, who had married Catherine Parr, who had been Henry's sixth wife. And you suggest that the conflict between the brothers was actually between the women. Can you tell us more? So when I started researching that 
part of Anne Seymour's life. I was very surprised because some biographers of Catherine Parr and of Edward Seymour say that this dispute over precedence never taken place and that it's only present in the Spanish Chronicle. And we know that the Spanish Chronicle, which was written in the 1550s, is not the most accurate of sources. It's probably a near contemporary source. And the person who wrote it is the anonymous Spaniard, It's clear that he wasn't at court for most of the events that he was describing, but it's a good reflection of what was happening at court at the time. And things that are written there are corroborated by other sources. And the earliest source that there was some sort of a dispute between Catherine Parr and Anne Seymour comes from the French ambassador's letter in February of 1548, where he says that there is discord between the Seymour brothers, between Edward and Thomas, because of the dispute between their wives. He doesn't name the dispute, but Thomas Seymour says after Catherine Parr's death in 1548 that it would be very interesting to see his daughter, Mary, coming of age and taking her place above the Duchess of Somerset, above Anne Seymour. And that's just the best corroboration of the quarrel that there was between Anne and Catherine. And also Catherine Parr herself, she hated Anne Seymour. That's really interesting because they shared similar religious beliefs. And yet there was no love lost between them. And Catherine Parr, in the love letters to Thomas Seymour, she says, for example, that Anne Seymour is that hell and that whatever she promises to her friends, she never performs on those promises. And I think that the root of this dislike between them was the fact that Catherine Parr married Thomas Seymour so soon after Henry VIII's death because Henry VIII died in January of 1547. He was buried in February. And by May, Catherine and Thomas referred to each other in their love letters as husband and wife. So that's very soon. And there was this implication that if Catherine Parr were to be pregnant, then who was to say that this child wasn't Henry VIII's? Of course, Catherine would have known but nobody else would. And when Thomas Seymour fell from grace in 1549, there was this accusation against him that he married the Dowager Queen so quickly after the death of the late King, Henry VIII. Also that they sought the recognition of their marriage while being already married, (laughs) because they were married and they were looking for Edward VI's blessing, of Edward Seymour's blessing, and that was really the root of the dislike between the Seymours. And also when Catherine Parr left court, when she saw that she wasn't going to become regent, that Protector Somerset was to take all of the power for himself, she left for one of her dower possessions, and she established a second court by right, as one of her cousins later said in a poem. There was about 120 people in her household, She retained ladies-in-waiting and maids of honor, whom served her when she was queen. She also had Lady Elizabeth there in her establishment and Lady Jane Grey, who would become queen very briefly in 1553. So that must have angered Anne Seymour, but the fact that Catherine established a second court away from court was also a good indication that she was trying to communicate something to someone and that someone was Anne Seymour. And she was entitled to. She was the Dowager Queen. She was a queen stepmother, if not queen mother. And you can see the reasons for that sense of dispute on both sides. ¶¶ 
On American History Hit, we ride the wild Oregon Trail, delve deep beneath Central Park, and fight the forgotten war of 1812. Join me, Don Wildman, and my expert guests as we uncover the stories that have shaped America in all its endless complexity. We'll follow John Wilkes Booth as he shoots President Lincoln and goes on the run. And we'll walk under the stars with Harriet Tubman as she finds her way to freedom. Follow America's story from the first Native people to footprints on the moon on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, with new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Edward Seymour was arrested by John Dudley in October 1549 for treason because he had mismanaged government as Lord Protector, had been far too populous, really. And later, Anne was also imprisoned. And that's the interesting thing here for us today. Why was Anne seen as a threat? Does her arrest prove her power? There are two arrests of Lord Protector. First, he was arrested yes, in October of 1549. And Anne Seymour didn't accompany him to the tower at this time. And it's interesting that Protector's first move was to send his wife to safety to the house of her half-brother, Sir Michael Stanhope, in Beddington. She went there and she started writing letters. She wrote letter to William Paget, who was Protector's closest friend and advisor. They both plotted their way to power back in 1547 when Henry VIII died. And Paget also warned Somerset that many councillors were very unhappy about the way he managed affairs and that he wasn't really listening to their advice. And... Anne knew that Paget was her best bet at helping her husband, and she wrote a letter to him. But really, a power move that she made in 1549 was coming to John Dudley, who plotted her husband's arrest. And she decided to appeal to him through his wife, through Jane Dudley, who was a Countess of Warwick at that time. And the two women, they met every day, they certainly were visible presence at court because the imperial ambassador says the Duchess of Somerset is all the time, every day, in the house of the Dudleys and she's talking to Dudley's wife. Again, the Spanish Chronicle says that Anne even threw herself on her knees before Dudley, which may or may not be true, but definitely she did plot. She wanted help from the Dudleys and the two women 
managed to arrange a marriage between their children. So Anne's eldest daughter, Anne, marries John Dudley, the eldest son of the Dudley family. And it really is perceived as the match made by the mothers, but it didn't really help. Somerset was released from the tower, but soon afterwards he was arrested again, because apparently there was too much of a power struggle involved between Dudley and Seymour. And even the marriage of their children didn't really help. And in 1551, when Dudley, who now is the Duke of Northumberland, when he arrests Somerset, he makes no mistake this time. And he arrests Anne Seymour as well, because she's just too powerful. She built this impressive network of friends, of clients, of people who were able to help her, perhaps in releasing her husband again, And Dudley wasn't about to make that mistake again. So she's arrested. And yes, her arrest shows that she was powerful, that she still had supporters who might support her. And when Somerset was executed, there was this rumor that Anne would accompany him to the scaffold as well. And that wasn't really an unreasonable expectation because by that time, we know that women were executed and also her half-brother, her advisor, they were very close. Sir Michael Stanhope was also executed. So it wasn't an unreasonable expectation that she would be executed as well, but she wasn't. She survived. She stayed in the tower until 1553, when Mary Tudor becomes Queen Mary I, when she overthrows Lady Jane Grey and sends Dudley to his death. So let's move on to talk about Jane Dudley, Nee Guildford. After Edward Seymour was executed in 1552 and Dudley, as you said, the Duke of Northumberland, as he becomes, was made Lord President of the Council, not Lord Protector. Did Jane assume the position and authority that Anne Seymour had once held? It's interesting that Jane once said she was never bold among the women, which means that she probably didn't like all of the spotlight being on her. And unlike Anne, Anne was everywhere. Her presence is palpable everywhere. But not Jane. She's more of a quiet, more of a withdrawn person. But at the same time, she, like Anne Seymour, she builds this network of friends, of clients, of powerful people who might help her in the time of her need. And indeed, when her husband was arrested in 1553, when Mary Tudor became queen, she wrote letter to Anne Paget. So again, Paget, the name crops up, and she asks for help. She knows exactly which women she is going to ask for help. So she asks if Lady Paget could ask the Marchioness of Exeter and Lady Susan Clarentius. These two women were the closest to the new queen. And really, Jane was also trying to plead with Queen Mary, but Queen Mary said, no, I won't receive you. So there was no audience, although Jane was traveling to see the queen, but it didn't really happen for her. But yes, in terms of power, she was powerful, but she was more of a power behind the scenes, not as obvious as Anne Seymour. And so hers was a kind of quiet influence. I mean, we know that she was highly educated, that she had embraced 
Renaissance humanism. She commissioned works by John Dee, you say, and had supported the reformer Anne Askew. So we have a bit of a sense of who she was, but she's making that known in this quiet way. Can we talk a bit, though, about her role in the ascendancy of Lady Jane Grey? I love the fact that her son Guildford is called Guildford, her maiden name, and he marries Lady Jane Grey in 1553. And then, as many listeners will know, Edward named Jane as his successor in his device for the succession. There's lots of debate among historians about the exact nature of the Duke of Northumberland's role in lining Jane up for the throne. What evidence do we have about Jane's role in bringing or attempting to bring her family to the throne? So there is this letter that Lady Jane Grey wrote. It is an account of what she herself thought about her becoming queen. And she says that she's very surprised at the death of Edward VI. And she details the role that her mother-in-law played in her rise. Lady Jane Dudley was with Jane Grey in the tower at the time when Jane was proclaimed queen. And Jane Grey actually said that she will not make Guildford king. And that's not what the Dudleys wanted to hear, really. And Jane Dudley told Jane Grey that if she is not going to make her son king, but only a duke, then she will keep him from sleeping with her. (laughs) So that's a little bit of a blackmail from the mother-in-law. But overall, Jane Dudley, she supports her husband in everything. She loves him. They have also, I think, about 12 children, so almost as many as Anne Seymour and Edward had. And she also later would say, after his downfall, that he was the best gentleman to her that she would have ever wished for. And she knew him since they were children. He was raised in her household. So really, she supports everything that he does, and she doesn't perceive him as the villain of the story. Of course not. To her, he is the person who tries to save the reforms, because if Mary becomes queen, she brings back the Catholicism, and everybody expects that. But when John Dudley goes to meet Queen Mary, the Lady Mary, who wasn't yet a queen, but he intends to fight her. And when the news comes that Mary is queen, she's proclaimed queen, Jane Dudley, she cries because she knows what it means. She knows that her husband is now a traitor to the crown. And it's really interesting how their allegiances, their loyalties shifted. One day they are at the top, at the pinnacle of the society, and the next they are traitors to the crown. That's really fascinating to really think about, dangerous for the people who are involved because they lost their lives for it. But it really shows how unpredictable that particular period of time was. Yes, it does indeed. So like Anne Seymour, Jane Dudley is in her turn imprisoned in the tower and like Anne Seymour also witnesses the death of her husband, in this case executed, as you've just said, for treason against Mary I. How did Jane manage to gain her freedom and how did she try to restore her family? I was particularly intrigued by the support of the Spanish in these events. Yes, Jane Dudley, she enters the tower with Jane Grey in glory. And when Jane Grey becomes a prisoner, Jane Grey never really leaves. (laughs) And Jane Dudley is 
imprisoned with her, but she leaves the tower relatively quickly because Queen Mary, she wasn't really a person who would execute a woman or noblewoman in that case. She knew that probably it was the Duke of Northumberland who would suffer for it, for what he had done, because Mary saw that Lady Jane Grey's usurpation as not the act of Jane Grey herself. She perceived Jane Grey as a pawn in the hands of more powerful people, and in this case, in the hands of John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland. And Mary once reflected, she said that John Dudley was one of the most unstable men in England, and she hated him. And that hatred really didn't start in 1553 when John took up arms against her, but really earlier when he was pushing her to renounce Catholicism, because Somerset was more lenient toward Mary, whereas Northumberland wanted to aggressively pursue her and show her that she should renounce her religion and become a Protestant. So Jane Dudley, she leaves the tower and she immediately goes to Queen Mary to plead for her husband's life. And not only for her husband's life, but also for the lives of her five sons who are also imprisoned. She is potentially to lose not one person, but six of them her sons, her living legacy, and she was about to protect that legacy. But Mary learns that Jane Dudley is on her way to meet her, and she says no, she won't receive her. And there is no audience between them, because probably Mary knows that Jane would use everything that she had to persuade her. And Mary was bent on executing Northumberland, but she didn't execute all of the sons. We know only Guildford lost his life, and not immediately. It was after the Wyatt Rebellion that really sealed his fate and the fate of Lady Jane Grey. But at the time, in August of 1553, Mary wasn't about to let go of John Dudley. He was about to die, and he did die. He recounts his religion, something that Mary never did, even though her life was in danger for quite a while during Edward's reign. And if he thought that this was about to save him, he was wrong, because Mary doesn't like that at all, because he was the most unstable man in England, as she said. And it was clearly shown when he renounced his own religion. And that was something that Mary just confirmed to her that he should be executed. And he was executed. But the Dudley sons... Not all of them. The four of them are released from the tower. One of them, John, the eldest, dies soon after his release. But the other ones, they live and they live until Queen Elizabeth becomes queen and they are these favourites of her. Let's talk finally then about Elizabeth Parr. Elizabeth spelt with an S. She was a maid of honour to Catherine Howard and I understand she possibly caught the eye of Henry VIII. But ultimately, she married William Parr, brother to Catherine, and this marriage caused scandal. Can you tell us what went wrong and how it was eventually put right? William Parr is married to Anne Bouchier, who was the sole heiress of the Earl of Essex. She was a great match at the time when she married William, but they were not a very happy marriage. They were just incompatible with each other. It seems that Anne wasn't at all in love with William, and she eloped with a lover. She left William, and she had at least two children with her lover. And in 1543... William disinherits her children and he obtains a legal separation 
through ecclesiastical court. This legal separation from Anne's bed and board, as it was called at the time, meant that they could live apart, they could be separated from each other, but that none of them could remarry. By the end of Henry VIII's reign, William makes a plea to Henry to help him obtain a divorce. And Henry VIII dies, and this is unresolved. But in early 1547, William makes a plea to Edward VI to help him get a divorce. And of course, Edward is a child, so he launches this investigation, whether William could be divorced from his first wife. And divorce in Tudor England didn't really exist, such as we know today by divorce. You could obtain an annulment, so there was a way to prove that your marriage was never valid in the first place. And interestingly, even after England became Protestant, there was no such thing as divorce based on one of the spouse's adultery, which was a common practice on the continent in Protestant countries. And in his later life, when William was fighting for annulment for divorce, he said that this indissolubility of marriage was a popish doctrine, was a popish law. And in early 1548, he finally marries Elizabeth Brooke. He marries her even though he is married still to Anne Bouchier. And what happens is the Lord Protector orders him to separate from Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is briefly put in the household of Catherine Parr, who, by the way, supports her brother and her sister-in-law. And it's interesting that William has to separate from Elizabeth He's separated from both of his wives. He has no children, so no heirs of his body to succeed to his titles. But in 1549, when Lord Protector falls from grace, William decides to have his marriage to Anne annulled and his second marriage proclaimed valid. And he has his marriage proclaimed valid in 1552 by a private act of parliament. And this is the only parliamentary divorce in Tudor England. But unfortunately, William backs the wrong horse. He backs John Dudley, and we know how that ended for Dudley. And Queen Mary I, she's angry with William, she imprisons him, and in a twist of fate, his first wife pleads for his release from the tower. And Queen Mary does it, she releases him under the condition that he must take Anne as his wife again. Queen Mary I's reign is the darkest period for William and for his wife Elizabeth. And at this time, Elizabeth Parr, she really doesn't have a defined status because some people refer to her as Elizabeth Parr, some say she's a Marchioness of Northampton because William was Marquis. And others say, oh, she's a late marchioness of Northampton, so that this title doesn't belong to her. And when her parents die, they refer to her as marchioness in their last wills, which means that her parents really supported her marriage to William, and so it is valid. And when Queen Mary dies in 1558, it's probably the best news for both William and Elizabeth because they are again together, their marriage is recognized by Queen Elizabeth I, but not officially. So when Elizabeth Parr dies in 1565, William Parr makes this move that he wants to marry another woman, but he waits until his first wife really dies so that he could marry without controversy. So it's a good QI question, which was the actual divorce that happened in the Tudor period. Upon the accession of Elizabeth I, it seems that Elizabeth Parr was particularly close to the Queen. The ambassadors note their affiliation. 
What is it possible to say about Elizabeth Parr's influence? Does she have any formative shape that she brings to bear on decision-making or on court life? Elizabeth Parr's association with Queen Elizabeth I started in the household of Catherine Parr during Henry VIII's reign because Elizabeth Parr was a maid of honor and she probably met Lady Elizabeth who, you know, as the king's youngest child, she was serving as one of Catherine's maids of honor, although not on a regular basis. But their association starts there and then Elizabeth is also in the household of Catherine Parr when the Seymour scandal, of course, when Thomas Seymour is aggressively pursuing Elizabeth. And they really, their friendship, it became very strong during Queen Mary's reign when Elizabeth Parr warns Elizabeth about this plan to smuggle her out of England to marry Duke Philibert of Savoy. And Elizabeth I was very grateful for Elizabeth Parr for that service that she performed to her. And Elizabeth I, she later said that Queen Mary's reign was the darkest period of her life, that she stood in danger of her life, which was true. And she was very grateful to the people who risked all of it to be loyal to her and not to Mary. And Elizabeth Parr was one of those people. And when Elizabeth I became queen, she makes this great demonstration of her affection towards William Parr and Elizabeth. And she briefly stops at the house of William Parr when she's going to her coronation procession. William Parr couldn't attend the queen at this time because he was ill. He had a quartan fever. But he looked at the queen from the window and they exchanged some pleasantries. And one of the ambassadors noted the queen is friends with those who are not friends of her sister. And that was very telling. And Elizabeth Parr, she lived very briefly during Queen Elizabeth's early years, and she's forgotten because she died in 1565 at the age of only 38. And Elizabeth had many more female favorites later on, and we remember those favorites more than we remember Elizabeth Parr. But Elizabeth Parr had a lot of influence with the Queen. One ambassador says, if she doesn't know the truth, then I don't know the truth either. He was commenting upon Elizabeth I's health because she was sick at that time and Elizabeth Parr was attending her in her bedchamber. And during this marriage game that Elizabeth I played at with the foreign ambassadors, Elizabeth Parr played some role as well. She had dealings with the Swedish embassy because Queen Elizabeth I was pursued by Eric of Sweden. And she was very noticeably the Queen's favorite. And also because Elizabeth Parr fell sick, she had a breast cancer, she couldn't exert as much influence as she probably would have liked. But Queen Elizabeth I made this decision to help cure Elizabeth Parr and she sent her to the Netherlands where the doctors were believed to possibly help her. And she wrote a letter to the Margaret of Parma, the regent of the Netherlands, that she requested safe passage for her cousin. She named Elizabeth Parr as her cousin. But unfortunately, the cancer apparently was too widespread in her that it couldn't be cured. And Elizabeth Parr died and... Elizabeth I's reaction is not recorded how she reacted on the day of Elizabeth Parr's death, but there's this very revealing situation, I think in 1571, when William Parr comes to Elizabeth together with other counselors to ask her, to beg her to marry. 
And seeing William Parr together with other men, Elizabeth I explodes. She says, you better attend to your own marriage, to your own marital misadventures. Don't lecture me on marriage. So this kind of means probably that she isn't very happy about the fact that William was pursuing someone else, that he wanted to remarry. And he married his third wife, Helena Snackenberg, one of the Swedish Princess Cecilia's maids of honor after his first wife dies so that there is really no controversy about that marriage. But only six months he lived in a married state and he died childless. So it's really interesting that he had no children with any of his wives. Finally then, the word ambitious is often used pejoratively of women. I would like to ask whether you think we should reclaim and celebrate that word when we're talking about Anne and Jane and Elizabeth. Yes, I think so. Because when we talk about men, ambition is always a good thing. And when we talk about women, it's never a good thing. And ambitious women, they make history, as is evidenced by Anne, Elizabeth and Jane. And I think we shouldn't use the word ambition when we describe these women pejoratively, because it was a good thing. They used their power and influence to help others. They helped to really spread the religious changes in England. And they weren't doing that because of their personal inclinations, but because they saw it as rescuing other people's souls from eternal damnation. So I think that the ambition in Tudor women is a good thing. And I will be writing more about other ambitious Tudor women because there's quite a lot of them. (laughs) Well, thank you for talking us through the lives of these three forgotten Tudor women. You have other books which explore other forgotten Tudor women and maybe we shall have another chance to talk about them. But for today, thank you so much for bringing these women to our attention. Thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. Thank you. Thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.